Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 98 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending April 13th, 2018, the Sox Are Back edition. First, a word about our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Affiliated Monitors was founded in 2004, and it provides professional integrity, monitoring, and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this week's episode, Jay and I take a look at a potpourri of topics, including the Red Sox hot start at 10 and 2. Is there a upcoming healthcare focus in FCPA enforcement actions? We take a look at Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress and what it may mean for Facebook down the road. We look at the SEC awarding yet another whistleblower over $2.1 million. We consider no poach agreements and whether they violate antitrust law. We consider the NAVEX Global report that more hotline and whistleblower reports are turning out to be valid after corporate investigations. Jay talks about a great podcast involving Eric Feldman, SVP at Affiliated Monitors, our sponsor, and Tom Polsky, Topolsky from Louis Berger about the role of a corporate monitor with a company. I discuss the new FinCEN rules on customer due diligence and ultimate beneficial ownership, which go into effect on May 11th, and where this may lead for non-financial corporations. I discuss my upcoming Conversant Roundtable presentations in Houston on April 17th, Dallas on April 18th, the new book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, and JT details some of the speaking engagements of the principals at Affiliated Monitors. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox here, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 98 for the week ending April 13th. That's Friday the 13th, 2018, the Sox are back edition. Together with uh, my co-host and cohort, Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, we're going to take a look at uh, the week that was in compliance and ethics, starting with the notation that the Red Sox are leading the AL with a 10-2 and two start. They are already brawling with the evil empire situated it in the Bronx, the New York Yankees. And so it looks like it's going to be a, a great baseball season, Jay. I'm looking forward to that and also looking forward to a potpourri of ethics, compliance, and FCPA stories. It's been a busy week. And um, why don't you start us off with number one? So um, first up is an article by uh, Joseph Spinelli and Lisa Murta from Akura, excuse me, Ankara, not yep. the capital of Turkey, but the company uh, that talks about FCPA due diligence and healthcare M&A. They begin by noting in a conference recently, the Sandra Moser, the acting chief of the fraud section of the DOJ, announced that there was a uh, 
combination or at least a collaboration between the FCPA unit and the corporate strike force of the healthcare fraud unit to investigate healthcare corruption in the United States and abroad. And they, they drove that down to the FCPA by really talking about what healthcare companies needed to do in FCPA M&A due diligence. They uh, certainly reiterated the point that uh, companies need to engage in robust pre-acquisition due diligence and how important that is. They gave us uh, some targets or rather some uh, uh, lists of areas for inquiry that uh, healthcare companies should engage in, such as does the target company or its subs operate in a high-risk country? Do they operate at high-risk industries in addition to healthcare, specifically noting that healthcare is high-risk because of the government officials associated with it? Is the target uh, company's what is the target company's association with the foreign government or a state-owned enterprise? Does the target company have clear policies and procedures around anti-bribery, anti-corruption? And are there prior instances that the target companies engaged in bribery and corruption? Always an important review, but I think uh, specifically in terms of acting uh, chief of the fraud section, Sandra Mosier's thoughts on, uh, or at least uh, comments about the collaboration of the uh, corporate strike force of the healthcare fraud unit and the FCPA unit, it's certainly going to uh, presage or portend and increased um, scrutiny of healthcare in that area. So it's important that you engage in robust pre-acquisition due diligence as opposed to post-acquisition integration. Um, Jay, probably... So, uh, go ahead. I just want to jump in for a sec. I, I know I, I sound like a broken record, and I've been saying this for the last three or four years, that you know, with my background of doing middle market investment banking, unfortunately, when companies are coming together, there is that sprint to get the deal over the line. And what they want to look at is quality of earnings and look at, you know, all the synergies that can happen and all the people they can lay off to be more profitable. But again, doing uh, due diligence from an FCPA perspective does not seem to be very high on many <coughs> bankers and, uh, you know, strategic companies list when they're doing M&A. So I don't know how many years we've been cautionary people about success or liability, but it's real. And just to, you know, underscore your point, if Sandra Mosier is talking about it and you're in the healthcare industry, you know, it's, I'm going to keep going back to my Fram auto commercial. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. So, uh, you know, th this is definitely a, a cautionary warning that should be uh, heated. All right. I'm off my soapbox. Off, uh, off the soapbox and onto uh, Facebook, which was certainly one of the biggest stories of this week, uh, probably internationally, Jay, was the testimony of Mark Zuckerberg. We explored this uh, in depth uh, in a recent recording for uh, Everything Compliance, which will go up next week. So I don't want to uh, either take away from that or, or uh, really hit on the same topics. Uh, but I wanted to maybe look at it from a couple of different angles uh, that we saw in articles this week. The first one was coming wave of litigation against uh, Facebook. It's already been filed, class action litigation here in the United States. Um, in an article by Sasha Matusak in the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, Jill Mont, uh, my colleague at Compliance Week, took a look at some of the uh, potential regulatory um, schemes that might go in place uh, for uh, Facebook 
So um, I think the regulatory scheme is probably going to be the biggest one that compliance practitioners have to face. Uh, both data protection and data privacy are going to be in the forefront, I think, of uh, regulators going forward. The questions, some of the questions will be, does the U.S. enact some type of uh, GDPR-like uh, legislation? Will there be something a little bit different than that? And then the questions, or at least one of the questions that I would pose, Jay, is uh, say the United States either has something different from GDPR, not the level and robustness of data privacy protection that we see in GDPR, it does nothing. Um, yet Facebook will be under GDPR in the EU and the United Kingdom going forward. Will Facebook and other international companies have to adopt a company-wide robust uh, data protection, data privacy, um, the uh, and then, of course, push that out to all persons they do business with, giving you a business solution to the legal problems of data protection and data privacy. I've continued, Jay, to look at the commentary around uh, what people thought of Zuckerberg's testimony, and although the commentary seemed to be that the House on day two did a little bit better in the Q&A part, uh, it's uh, the the one of the bigger takeaways, or I guess three three biggest takeaways are that uh, Zuckerberg comported himself quite well. He said the things that he had to say, uh, which was apologies, uh, deference, and would uh, answer uh, via follow up questions he could not answer uh, at the hearing, and that. Um, I guess for me, Jay, one of the biggest was the disconnect we seem to have between the leaders of our political class and the leaders of the biggest burgeoning industry in America, which is tech, in the face of Mark Zuckerberg. Now, I recognize there are other faces of that, certainly Tim Cook, certainly Jeff Bezos, but this was Mark Zuckerberg's day in the spotlight, or at least the congressional spotlight. And he obviously looks very different. Uh, it's from a different generation, uh, talks and thinks very differently than the uh, political class. And it really struck me as how disconnected we, our political class may be from the next generation of entrepreneurial and business uh, leaders that this country um, is uh, engendering. Uh, because in uh, more traditional industry, certainly in my in industry of of uh, energy and, and your former industry of entertainment, I think the uh, the leaders tend to be sort of in their 50s, maybe a little bit older, and uh, finance, uh, banking, those types of leaders tend to be a little bit older, um, and the tech guys are, are a little bit younger. Um, Zuckerberg, for instance, founded Facebook in, in college and has been the CEO the whole time. Uh, and since his 30s. So it uh, really struck me, and, and I'm not quite sure where that difference will lead, but uh, that to me was one of the more interesting things to come out of this hearing, and this is certainly something from the compliance perspective that we'll be following quite a bit going forward. Yeah, I wanted to just point out um, a couple things in Joe's article that I thought was great. One, um, he brought up a name that I haven't heard in years called GeoCities, 
Yes. And he talked about the GeoCities FTC enforcement that took place in 97, 98. And, you know, basically we're facing those same issues from 20 years ago. Uh, the other thing that was interesting in his article is he talks about a California assemblyman uh, named Mark Levine and how he's trying to uh, drive to uh, have the U.S. adopt um, GDPR and to really drive this from the California perspective because we have so many of these tech assets that are out in Silicon Valley and he wants to you know, help drive the regulation but also help the companies be competitive. And, um, you know, it just kind of reminds me that uh, I guess depending on whose numbers you use, California is either the sixth or the eighth largest economy in the world. And California has driven much of the uh, EPA regulation, which our, our good friend Secretary Pruitt has done, the, uh, done his best to dismantle. But um, it still does show you the economic power here in California. And although Governor Brown is uh, ceding to President Trump and sending one or two National Guardsmen to the border, um, we still kind of do our own thing and we have an agenda that we want to drive. So, Jay, we had another whistleblower award this week. And if I can maybe set this up for you, we have now sure. the SEC has now paid $266 million to 55 whistleblowers and over $90 million has been paid out literally in, uh, in 2018 alone. So what did you see interesting in this whistleblower award and do you see this continuing? Um, I, I think it's more the, the latter point, Tom, that um, if you kind of look at it in relative terms, uh, 2.1 is is not a huge amount. But when you already look at the numbers from this year, which you said uh, in March, in mid-March of this year, three whistleblowers were awarded $83 million. So that really kind of skews the data. And it really just... Uh, shows that this program from the SEC has been um, extremely successful. And uh, even though with um, a couple hiccups in terms of potentially losing uh, some of your uh, anti-retaliation, uh, um, you know, safety for the whistleblowers, uh, they are still going to the SEC. And there's um, still a way that uh, these companies can be prosecutors and the whistleblowers uh, can be rewarded for their uh, good information. You know, Jay, why don't you just take this opportunity to follow up uh, directly uh, and we'll drop back to number four in a minute on uh, the uh, recent Navex uh, Global report about what they've seen about hotlines and whistleblower reports. It seemed to be a nice follow. Yeah. Harry Cotter wrote about this on uh, April 10th in the Wall Street Journal, and we linked uh, we linked to it in the show notes. And uh, more claims by whistleblowers are proving true as companies look into the issues raised, and fewer tipsters are telling their employees that they face retaliation. And uh, the numbers that Navex has come up with is 44% of the 900,000 claims included in a benchmarking report prove correct. Uh, and that compares with the median rate of substantiation of 40 percent in 2016. So there's been a four percent increase. And uh, this uh, Carrie Penman over at Navex says that this increase is substantiated 
in substantiated reports is notable and it is an indication of maturing programs. At the same time, the percentage of reports alleging retaliation against employees declined from 0.66 to 0.66% from 0.93%. So uh, that's happening too. And the only step that's in the wrong direction, uh, the time it takes companies to resolve claims increased slightly. The medium number of days needed to close an employee's claim rose from 44 244 from 42 in 2006. And uh, putting a cap on the journal's article, um, Scott Nelson, an employment lawyer at Baker McKenzie, uh, spoke with uh, Carrie Penman uh, on a webinar. And he said, honestly, most employee claims should be resolved within a week or two, though some can take longer due to the complexity of an issue or difficulty reaching the people involved. So um, we link both to... Um, the data from uh, Navix and the journal article. And I would say it's just a, a, another confirmatory step in the way that programs are maturing and, uh, you know, people are taking heed of what's happening out there in the, in the marketplace. Uh, next up, Jay, uh, we had an interesting article by my compliance week colleague, Jacqueline Jager, in, uh, around the issue of no poach agreements. And no poach agreements are for those uh, uninformed uh, where two companies agree they want to uh, purloin each other's employees, either for a um, set period of time uh, or open-ended or during a project, during the life of a contract. Uh, these are fairly common types of agreements. But uh, the Department of Justice has recently filed a civil antitrust lawsuit um, against uh, one of these no-poach agreements. And if that ruling uh, goes forward as the uh, DOJ has asked, and uh, it could certainly impact uh, the ability of companies to do this. Now, companies typically have employees sign uh, non-competes, but uh, and so you can't go to a competitor. But when you sign a contract with uh, a, a business venture partner, a third party, someone at arm's length, that's generally not going to be a competitor. So the no, no poach agreements keep, can keep you from going to company to company or are being hired from company to company. And the clear uh, legal and compliance risk here, or there is a clear legal and compliance risk that companies must be careful in negotiating um, both uh, solicitation and non-solicitation agreements. Not all non-solicitation agreements are going to be illegal, uh, but uh, they may be for a wide variety. And I think this is something that uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on. Companies need to be very aware of because, Jay, this is uh, actually a fairly common tactic. And if it's uh, upheld by the courts, uh, as the DOJ has suggested, it could change uh, lots of different uh, contractual clauses, much the way we saw that in the pretaliation uh, cases for whistleblowing some time back. Uh, Jay, we had a, I thought, a really interesting, fascinating, and, and perhaps I could even say important podcast that came out this week on the SCCE Compliance Perspectives, which is hosted by Adam Turtletop. It has your uh, colleague, Eric Feldman, and Tom Tobolsky from... Um, Louis Berger, and they talk about uh, the relationship between a corporate monitor and a corporation. So uh, obviously Eric is uh, with Affiliated Monitors, and Tom, uh, I believe, was formerly with uh, Louis Berger, 
and and I found it really interesting. I have seen them speak together at conferences, and the information they uh, give is uh, not only first rate, but certainly significant for every corporate compliance officer and indeed uh, corporate uh, senior official. So with that incredibly long-winded introduction, I hope I haven't stole your thunder, and you can get into it a little bit more. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for setting it up that way, Tom. Um, you know, that this is uh, <clears throat> really timely, especially uh following last week's uh, five-part series that we did about uh, corporate monitors. And my key takeaway from the conversation uh, between Tom and Eric is that the really important thing that you need to have to make a corporate monitorship work is that you need to have a level of trust with your monitor. And, uh, you know, initially it's, it's a tripartite situation because you've got a government regulator, you have the party that is being regulated, and then you have the monitor who's kind of in between. And and part of the thing you need to do is develop this relationship. And you have to shift it from a perspective where your client who's hired you has to look at you as a partner and trust that you are there to do what's best to help uh, correct the business and inoculate it from future recidivism. And, you know, Tom and Eric really developed that relationship and we feel, and they feel that the company is much stronger three years into the process now. So sometimes you get into a situation and the monitor is looked at being a gotcha guy that the monitor is there to do further digging and, and trying to get more stuff for the government to get on the client. And that is not the way that we approach this. I mean, other monitors might do things differently, but we generally become part of the solution and we have the independent perspective to dispassionately take a look at a company find out where the uh, control failures are and help them put in place a system to make them successful in the future. So um, I'd recommend if you have 12 minutes, uh, it's a real great podcast. I recorded it live at the recent SCCE ECI in Frankfurt. And um, I believe Eric and Tom are going to be doing an advanced discussion group will be based on this uh uh, interview and what they presented in Frankfurt, and that's going to be added soon to the agenda for this October's uh, CEI in Las Vegas. So um, good stuff here on monitors. And um, now I will throw it back to you on new FinCEN rules that are coming out regarding due diligence and beneficial ownership. Sure. So um, FinCEN has issued uh, fake cues around the new requirements for customer due diligence, which will go into effect May 11th. And this is for financial institutions, but it has a lot of great information. And I think, uh, indeed, down the road, applicability for non-financial institutions. So uh, obviously, banks focus on customers and this is not something that non-financial institutions have typically done customer due diligence around beneficial ownership and um, checking them out for potential AML or other violations. I think this is uh, where 
non-financial corporations need to go. But there was a couple of things I wanted to highlight. The first is that uh, by uh, and now, uh, at least after May 11th, you're going to be required to gather uh, information about your customer at account opening. And the key here, Jay, is it will be used to develop a baseline against which customer activity can be assessed for suspicious activity reporting. And think about that for a moment in terms of a uh, corporation. They rarely think about establishing a baseline of how a customer is going to act. So in terms of sales, sales pricing, um, gifts, travel, and entertainment, you might uh, spend on a customer either pre-sale or post-sale. I think having that baseline is a pretty good idea. The second thing is on updating beneficial ownership information. There is a a minimum standard of 25% interest in a legal entity, which requires uh, disclosure to the financial institution. A financial institution can go lower than that, but that's the FinCEN requirement. I think that's something that uh, non-financial corporations are going to need to uh, take a look at. Uh, there's a relationship, obviously, between ongoing monitoring and this information, and that's something that compliance officers and corporations are need to are going to need to uh, um, take a look at. And then uh, in uh, channeling their uh, uh, inner Ronnie Reagan, there's certainly a trust level, but uh, there's also a verification requirement. So trust but verify. So we're going to link to these full FAQs, and I think this is something that uh, regular non-financial corporations are going to have to consider going forward. But I I really want to emphasize that baseline because that works in a wide variety of of, uh, ways and with different types of corporate information. And I think by having a baseline of not only what the customer is going to buy from you, but your relationship with the customer in terms of gift, travel, and entertainment spend, length of time to get a contract signed, charitable donations you may make uh, at their request. All of those are a great uh, – establishing a baseline on that is a great way to see if something has changed and to really help you further operationalize your compliance program. So um, uh, take a look at that. Great. So uh, this week, in addition to the Sox being back, Jonathan Armstrong was back in deep in the heart of Texas. What did you guys do this week? So Jonathan was down in Houston. Uh, first thing we did was uh, we had a uh, 50% live recording of Everything Compliance uh, as he and I joined, uh, uh, were together in the studio, uh, joined by the rest of the gang. He also put on a uh, GDPR uh, event for the Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable. I also hosted a breakfast roundtable where Jonathan brought us up to date on the uh, Bribery Act, which was uh, really interesting and very good. So uh, a lot of good stuff. Uh, I took the opportunity to record some more podcasts on our Countdown to GDPR series that we'll be releasing over the next few weeks. So uh, it's great to have him over. It's a really busy time for he and his firm, obviously, with May 25 as the go-live date, but uh, he took the time to come over. So I'm certainly uh Glad uh, he did that. Um, Jay, if I could give yet another plug for the Complete Compliance Handbook, which will be released uh, probably late April, early May by Compliance Week. It's still available for pre-sale on my website. Uh, I've got a couple of events uh, uh, in the upcoming week. If you're in Houston on April 17th, I'm going to be leading a, or at least participating in a conversant roundtable on using data to drive ethics to the center of business. This really ties into my innovation and compliance podcast and where I think uh, compliance 
is going and needs to go, which is using data to help more fully operationalize compliance. If you're in Dallas on the 18th, I'm going to be there uh, leading a discussion on the same uh, roundtable. And of, uh, as we've said several times during this podcast, Jay, uh, the Everything Compliance Gang recorded yesterday, and um, uh, it's in production now, and that should go up on Thursday, April 18th. Uh, so hopefully uh, we'll have some fans on that. Um, in this podcast, we took two topics, which were the Zuckerberg testimony, Facebook Cambridge Analytica, and kind of dissected that. And then we took a look at the Michael Cohen uh, subpoena. We looked at it from the legal perspective, the attorney-client privilege, and how all of that really relates, uh, and the compliance officer needs to understand it. And uh, it was uh, less structured this on this podcast, more free form, with lots of great questions and answers going back and forth from the panelists. So uh, I think everyone uh, who enjoys that podcast will certainly enjoy our next episode. Jay, anything on the on the uh, AMI or uh, Rosen front we should uh, mention? Uh, if you happen to be in uh, Singapore next week. Uh, Eric will be addressing the Public Sector Internal Audit PSIA conference, and he will be talking about how audits become investigations. And then uh, on Tuesday of next week, the 17th, uh, Vindy Siani, the founder of Affiliated Monitors, and Donald Sterling will be in London for an event with our uh, strategic partner, um, RS Legal Strategy, and they will be welcoming uh, David Kirk to the firm. So uh, it's nice for uh, uh, our folks to get out to the UK and, and connect with some of our contacts over there. So that's what's happening from a, a affiliated monitors perspective. And, um, you know, I think uh, once again, we've uh, made it through another week. Uh, I think... Uh, with what happened this week in terms of Cohen and the uh, the Don raid, I think it's very prescient. Wasn't it last week ago that we had an article from Mike about what you do when the FBI comes a knocking? So we uh, I'm not saying we predicted this, but it's uh, certainly not surprising, and it's also Good to have the advice of Mike and the other folks in the Everything Compliance Roundtable. So, on behalf of Tom Fox and myself, Jay Rosen, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode number 98, the Socks Are Back edition. We thank you for coming and listening to us and talking about ethics, compliance, and FCPA, and we wish you all a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email jay at j.rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up of all things FCPA, compliance and ethics related over the past week. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.